to start these um, pre-recorded lectures on the cardiovascular uh, system for week four of Nursing 2003. Um, and this week we're talking about uh, three topics, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and stable angina. Um, as you are, I'm sure, aware, they're very overlapping, um, these three uh, conditions. So I want you to think about that. I am going to provide the pre-recorded lectures um, in three different segments, uh, easy for me and easy for you. Um, but please, I want you to be thinking critically while we're doing it about how, say, hypertension impacts coronary artery disease and vice versa, and how they're all um, actually related. So in terms of the agenda for these three lectures, um, we will consider the mechanics of normal blood pressure in some detail, um, and, and along with discussing that, how blood pressure can be elevated. We'll discuss the risk, clinical manifestations, complications, and care for hypertension. Um, we'll review some etiology and risk factors for cardiovascular disease, um, hypertension, coronary artery disease, and stable angina. We will review CAD and show how it can lead to hypertension and stable angina um, and how hypertension can lead to CAD, as I said. Um, and we'll discuss the pathophysiology, clinical manifestations, diagnostic tests, and management of stable angina. It says excluding pharmacology. Um, I've said before, this is not a pharmacology course, but we will touch on some pharmacology because it's so interesting how it's, you can understand pharmacology if you understand pathophysiology. So just a reminder about what you already know um, as an adult learner and as people who've had uh, experiences either in your personal life or in your jobs um, with uh, health conditions. I want to end as well as having being a second year or um, out of your first year nursing, uh, you have had other courses. So you already know a lot. So please don't forget that. So you know about heart function. Um, you know about the vasculature in terms of arteries and veins. You know about cardiac conduction you know we have coronary arteries to perfuse our cardiac muscle um, itself we've mentioned the renin angiotensin aldosterone system in the last lecture and i warned you that we'll keep talking about it so it's something you want to know um, we've mentioned antidiuretic hormone a couple times so you know about that you know about the sympathetic nervous system you understand the inflammatory response because we've had a lecture on it as well as the stress response so you come to this uh, particular discussion around cardiovascular disease with a lot of knowledge. So we're going to start, as I say, in this pre-recorded lecture talking about hypertension. And just uh, hypertension, high blood pressure, hyper being um, high when we, when we use it as a prefix. Um, but what is blood pressure? So it is the force exerted by blood on the wall of the vessel. Um, and we usually talk about it when we talk about blood pressure, uh, like what is your blood pressure? We're talking about arterial blood pressure. So hypertension is defined as a sustained elevation, so over time, of systemic arterial blood pressure. Uh, so we're usually talking about uh, something that is not just a one time because you're very frightened. That wouldn't be um, a diagnosis of hypertension, but a sustained elevation of your arterial blood pressure. And I said it's clinically determined, and what I mean by that is we don't magically know, there's not some magic number that this is hypertension, but through research and epidemiology, um, we know what levels of blood pressure um, ca are, cause adverse effects in the body. And through that, they've determined uh, for different people with different comorbidities, different blood pressures um, are the level at which adverse effects may start happening. 
And don't forget uh, that the whole point of having an adequate blood pressure is to perfuse our tissues. So if our blood pressure drops too low, our tissues won't perfuse um, and we won't get enough oxygen and waste won't be uh, taken away. Uh, on the other hand, if we have too much blood pressure, um, we can cause damage uh, just from the forces, as we shall see. And in terms of etiology, about one in five adult Canadians has blood pressure, so it's a prevalent uh, condition um, in Canada, and uh, the per and it's defined um, as a persistent elevation of systolic blood pressure over equal or over to 140 millimeters of mercury, or a diastolic blood pressure equal and over to 90 millimeters of mercury. Although, or being um, currently using antihypertensive medications, so maybe you have a blood pressure of 110 on 60, but you're on two different antihypertensives, you would still be considered as having a diagnosis of hypertension because it's managed by the antihypertensive medications. And as I said about hypertension being clinically determined, uh, so uh, just clinically, it was epidemiology and research at what level uh, adverse outcomes um, occur, start occurring. So as I said, it does vary depending on your comorbidities. So while we say hypertension is over about equal or over 140 on 90, if you're diabetic or you have chronic kidney disease, that level is lower because the adverse, adverse effects happen at a lower blood pressure. So we were looking for uh, one, uh, blood pressure of 130 on 80. The targets are different. Having said that, um, here are the normal stages of hypertension. So hypertension tends to be something, as we shall see, that develops over time, uh, quite often a significant amount of time, um, and you can be in different stages of the sustained elevated arterial blood pressure. So if uh, normal blood pressure is considered below 120 and 80, and pre-hypertension, something we don't think about a lot, is between 120 to 139 systolic over 80 to 89 diastolic. And then stage one hypertension, a systolic blood pressure reading of 140 to 159 and a diastolic blood pressure reading of 90 to 99 and then stage 2 hypertension where you have a systolic blood pressure reading over 160 and a diastolic blood pressure reading over 100. You can also have what's called isolated systolic hypertension so you know maybe you're taking blood pressures uh, you know serial blood pressures on an older client um, and they have you know, pretty regular blood pressures of about 170, 180, but on 70. They're thinking, is that high blood pressure? That would be what we would call isolated systolic hypertension, where you have a sustained elevation of the systolic blood pressure, um, but uh, a low or normal uh, diastolic blood pressure. And this is still considered hypertension. It still has adverse outcomes. Um, it is common in older adults because of the loss of the, uh, loss of the elasticity in the larger arteries. So if we're thinking back to what our definition of blood pressure is, it's the force of the blood on the uh, walls of the artery. Um, if you don't have any uh, give or elasticity in those arteries during systole, there will be that increased force because there's no give in the arterial walls or elasticity. So you'll have that elevated systolic blood pressure. So um, these are some key uh, formulas or, or equations, I guess, um, for understanding uh, how blood pressure is regulated and what factors will increase or decrease blood pressure. So we're going to look at them in some detail now. Um, and basically, it's that, that blood pressure is determined by the cardiac output times the systemic vascular resistance. And cardiac output is the total blood flow through the systemic or pulmonary circulation per minute. 
systemic vascular resistance is the force opposing the movement of blood within the blood vessels. And we're gonna look at these in, in some detail. And then cardiac output, that, that first um, part of the, of the above equation, is stroke volume times heart rate. So stroke volume is the amount of blood pumped by the left ventricle in each contraction. So with each ventricular contraction, how much blood is ejected. And the heart rate is the number of beats per minute. So the analogies I think of, because these are really important concepts, they're gonna come up when we talk about um, heart failure. Um, they're gonna come up uh, if you ever consider hypovolemic shock um, and, and excess fluid volume and fluid volume deficits. Um, so they're important concepts. So the analogies I think of, uh, if they're helpful, um, around cardiac output is uh, a hose or a water bottle. Uh, so if we're thinking about that cardiac output is the volume of blood ejected from the heart per minute, we think of a water hose analogy. It's if you ran a hose for a minute, how much water would you get out? Um, we also know that cardiac output is the stroke volume times the heart rate. So if we think of a water bottle analogy, and this magic water bottle has an endless supply of water in it, you're thinking about in terms of cardiac output is how much water can you squeeze out of that water bottle in a minute? So each stroke volume, uh, each time you press the water bottle, you might get 30 cc's out. You press it 100 times in a minute, so that's 30 times 100 or, or uh, 3,000. Did I get that right? Um, anyway, 30 times 100. Um, yes, I got that right. 30, 30 cc's per stroke volume, 100 beats per minute, so you'd get uh, 3,000 cc's. Um, you guys can double check my map. Um, so that's, that's sort of my analogies for cardiac output. In terms of systemic vascular resistance, which is the force opposing the movement of, of blood in the blood vessels, um, again, with the uh, water hose analogy, um, if you decrease the diameter of the opening of that hose, you're gonna increase pressure. And, and I'm sure many of us have experienced this, either you're trying to water the garden from the, on the other side and you don't wanna hook any more holes, so you just increase the pressure so it'll go further or you've uh, used it as a child to get your sibling on the other side of the lawn with the water hose. Um, in terms of the water bottle analogy, if you screw the little top on tighter, there's gonna be more pressure uh, against the flow of water, and so you're gonna have to have a stronger uh, contraction of your hands to get the same ejection fraction or the same amount of water out. So let's look at these more in terms of um, the cardiovascular system. Now, of course, as I said in the last lecture, if you're going to have compensatory mechanisms uh, to try and achieve homeostasis in the body, there's got to be some sort of monitoring system. Uh, so there has to be a trigger uh, for those compensatory mechanisms to come into play or to stop coming into play. So in terms of blood pressure, that monitoring system is the baroreceptors. So baroreceptors are essentially mechanoreceptors or stretch receptors that can perceive uh, an increase in blood pressure um, and then uh, trigger the hypothalamus um, to, um, to, to compensate for it. So if uh, there's an increase in stretch because of a high blood pressure, certain compensatory mechanisms will come into play. And if there's a low blood pressure, other compensatory mechanisms will come into play. And the two spots we have these baroreceptors are our carotid baroreceptor um, in the carotid sinus, in our neck, as you can see, and the aortic baroreceptors in the aortic arch. So this, um, 
image is out of your textbook um, and it explains those factors influencing blood pressure. And blood pressure has, it's so key to our body, it's how we perfuse our tissues. We don't want it too high, we don't want it too low. And so there's a lot of regulatory mechanisms um, uh, in play to try and achieve that balance. And as well, there's a lot of factors that can influence whether our blood pressures are high and low. So, so you can see in the center there, the um, equation that I had talked about earlier is central, which is blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. So anything that impacts these two things, cardiac output or systemic vascular resistance, will change the blood pressure, either for regulation purposes or as part of the pathophysiology. So we're gonna look at those in a bit of detail because uh, they help us think about what the interventions are, what the causes are, what the clinical manifestations are. Um, so I'm gonna look at these four regulatory systems um, and you know them pretty much. So the sympathetic nervous system we've talked about before and, and as you may recall, um, I did have uh, one slide saying that there's different kind of receptors so that epinephrine and norepinephrine can have different results um, or different outcomes at different parts of our body because there's different receptors uh, which do different things. So in terms of the sympathetic nervous system, for example, our alpha receptors cause peripheral vasoconstriction with sympathetic nervous system stimulation, whereas our beta-2 receptors increase contractility and conduction in the heart. Um, our vascular endothelium is more and more considered uh, an active tissue in our body in terms of regulation of local blood pressure and local effects, um, and two, um, um, products of the vascular endothelium are nitric oxide, or NO, which causes local vasodilation, and endothelin, or ET, which causes local vasoconstriction. So we'll talk about endothelin anyways. Um, and we've talked about the renal system in terms of the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, um, and we'll, we'll take a little look at it again today. Um, but the outcome is to increase the sodium and water retention, which is gonna increase um, blood volume, which is gonna increase venous return, going to increase cardiac output and given our equation of blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance, it's going to increase um, blood pressure. And as we'll see, the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system also has a part in vasoconstriction or increasing systemic vascular And finally, we'll look at the endocrine system, which you also know uh, because we talked about it in our first lecture and again uh, in other lectures, and we'll continue to talk about it. So basically the hypothalamic um, pituitary axis um, that results in stimulation of the adrenal medulla for the sustained systemic um, uh, sympathetic, sorry, sympathetic nervous system response with uh, release of epinephrine and norepinephrine um, and from the adrenal cortex release of um, uh, cortisol and aldosterone, but in this case we're looking at aldosterone which increases uh, water and sodium retention and from the posterior pituitary uh, the antidiuretic hormone, which increases water uh, retention. So those are the ones that we will talk about. Um, and I want to talk about them in light of those two aspects of uh, that key equation of blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance to examine how these regulatory systems um, have a play in either cardiac output or systemic vascular resistance. So if we look at blood pressure and cardiac output, um, I'll look at three things. Um, one is how the sympathetic nervous system impacts our cardiac output. 
so you know these things because like I say always build on what you already know because it's effective and interesting uh, so we know the sympathetic nervous system from our talk on the um, stress response in lecture one um, has uh, an impact on our body and we talked about how if you um, have a fight or flight experience your heart rate starts pounding and your heart rate increases because of the sympathetic nervous system um, and so we see in this slide the sympathetic nervous system causes that increase in heart rate and increase in stroke volume and we know that cardiac output is heart rate times stroke volume um, so that increases the cardiac output which is going to increase venous return um, uh, which is sorry which is going to increase blood pressure on the other side of this picture you'll see the uh, mention of the Frank Starling Law. You can just circle that uh, for next week uh, because it's important in uh, our discussion around heart failure. Uh, but in a nutshell, what that means is that uh, the more the ventricle stretches, the harder it's going to contract, just like an elastic. Uh, so you're going to have a higher uh, contractility or stroke volume. But circle and start that, and we'll talk about that next week. So then we're going to look at cardiac output as it relates to the renal system. Um, so again, looking at blood pressure as cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance, how does the renal system impact cardiac output? And you've seen this picture before, it's in your textbook, um, and it's the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. So if we start from the left again, in a very reiterative way um, for memory, um, that if you have decreased renal perfusion to your kidneys, it will produce renin. Uh, so a decreased blood pressure, for example, can do this. Um, it'll, your kidneys won't be perfused and um, you'll, uh, it'll produce renin. Renin converts angiotensinogen from the liver into angiotensin 1. Um, the angiotensin converting enzyme, or ACE, in your lungs will convert angiotensin 1 to angiotensin 2. Angiotensin 2 will stimulate your adrenal cortex to pr uh, produce and excrete aldosterone. And we know that aldosterone has an impact on the kidney to increase sodium and water retention, which increases extracellular fluid, which increases the blood pressure um, that way. Uh, so this is how, which is going to increase your cardiac output. The extracellular fluid volume is going to increase your cardiac output. So this is how the renal system impacts cardiac output. And then lastly, uh, let's talk about the cardiac output and um, your endocrine system, or that HPA access. So this is another uh, image that you have seen before, um, and I, I said that you, it's a good one to consider a key. Um, but if we think about it in terms of blood pressure, uh, we can see how in the hypothalamus um, uh, is you know, monitoring the system, in this case with baroreceptors, um, and sees that there's a problem, say, with uh, hypotension. It will release the corticotropin-releasing hormone. Uh, to stimulate the anterior pituitary to secrete adrenal corticotropin hormone, or ACTH, we're over on the left-hand side of the diagram here, which is going to stimulate the adrenal cortex to release aldosterone, which is going to increase sodium and water retention, increase blood pressure. All very important for the fight and flight response, and also stimulated because of the baroreceptors. Um, and on the other side, um, the posterior pituitary will secrete antidiuretic um, hormone, uh, which is going to uh, result in water retention, which is going to increase blood volume, which is going to increase blood pressure by increasing cardiac output. Um, so those are the three ways, um, or the three ways I want to talk about 
on how cardiac output is regulated in the body and then also gives you an idea of where problems can arise. So what about systemic vascular resistance? Uh, so the idea um, in this case that if we uh, increase the resistance, usually by decreasing the diameter in arterioles, um, how does that impact uh, blood pressure and how is that happening in our body? So always go back to your normal anatomy and, and physiology. So remember a normal uh, artery has these three layers, uh, the intima media and adventitia, and uh, the media includes smooth muscle which can contract. And that as the diameter gets smaller, just as in um, the, the water hose analogy, the force is gonna be increased or the pressure is gonna be increased. So this diameter can be decreased either through contraction of the smooth muscle or vasoconstriction, or as we'll see when we talk about coronary artery disease, uh, through the formation of plaques can also decrease um, diameter. Uh, so, but in, for the purpose of this lecture, we're talking about the decrease in terms of vasoconstriction. So how is systemic vascular resistance changed in the body or regulated and when, as I said, is through the sympathetic nervous system because our alpha receptors will um, cause vasoconstriction in the periphery. Um, and we, I mentioned endothelium as an important tissue in the local regulation um, of, of our vasculature. And uh, one thing that the endothelium produces is endothelin, which is an amino acid um, and it's released for a variety of reasons, including shear forces, which is like hypertension, um, by angiotensin II, antidiuretic hormones, cytokines, etc., and it's a powerful vasoconstrictor as well. And then if we go back to the renin angiotensin aldosterone system, as you can see here with my excellent PowerPoint techniques, I've highlighted the other way that the renin angiotensin aldosterone system impacts blood pressure, which is that angiotensin II. Uh, has a direct vasoconstrictive effect on arterioles, which is gonna increase blood pressure through increasing systemic vascular resistance. So we've looked at this, this is back to that um, diagram or flowchart that's in your textbook, and now you can see that we've talked about um, all these things, or most of these things anyways, um, that are in the little boxes. So blood pressure equals cardiac output times systemic vascular resistance. In terms of cardiac output, we've talked about how uh, an increase in heart rate, contractility, conductivity uh, through the sympathetic nervous system is gonna increase cardiac output and how increase in extracellular fluid volume uh, through the renal system, like the renin-angiotensin-aldosterone system, uh, is going to increase cardiac output. Um, you'll see also their natriuretic peptides, which we talked about a bit last week, and that's another one you can circle and star because um, we'll talk about it more next week when we talk about heart failure as well. And in terms of systemic vascular resistance, uh, we talked about how the sympathetic nervous system uh, through vasoconstriction of the, uh, by, via the alpha receptors will increase um, systemic vascular resistance and as well how, how angiotensin will increase um, vasoconstriction of your arterioles as well. And in terms of local regulation, uh, we talked about the vasoconstrictor, you know, because we're talking about hypertension, um, that endothelin, which is produced by the endothelium, is a vasoconstrictor. So we've, we've discussed the factors of this uh, equation. So in summary, anything that affects cardiac output or systemic vascular resistance um, and the heart rate and stroke volume because of that can affect the blood pressure. So, and this can result in hypertension, 
by increasing cardiac output, increasing heart rate, increased stroke volume, or increases, increasing systemic vascular resistance, or it can result in hypotension, so anything that decreases your cardiac output, decreases your heart rate, decreases your stroke volume, or decreases systemic vascular resistance will result in hypotension. And we can think of a lot, and this, this covers a lot of clinical conditions, which is why um, these are such key concepts and I'm spending a little bit of time with them. Um, so for example, for um, we talked a lot about increasing cardiac output uh, through heart rate and stroke volume. Next week, we'll talk about uh, decreasing um, in heart failure, decreasing, say, stroke volume. Um, and you think about systemic vascular resistance, you know, you can think about things that cause massive vasodilation, uh, such as sepsis or anaphylactic reactions that are going to have this profound effect on people's blood pressure as well. So what is some, so we've talked at length about that uh, so that you have an understanding of the pathophysiology. So let's talk a little bit about the etiology of hypertension. So most hypertension in adults, 90 to 95%, is what we would term primary or essential hypertension. Um, so this is what we're gonna focus on today. And what we mean by that is that there's no one cause of it. Um, it's uh, um, as, as is in secondary hypertension. In secondary hypertension, which is a much smaller percentage, five to 10% in adults, there is a one cause. So, um, and then we can treat the cause. Uh, so, for example, in that little picture I have there of your kidneys um, and with the little adrenals on top, uh, you can see that there's renal artery stenosis on one side. So that would be a secondary cause of hypertension because we know if your kidneys are not perfused, that the homeostatic compensatory mechanisms come into play and blood pressure is increased. So the treatment would be treatment of the renal artery stenosis. Other examples might be hyperaldosteronism, and you know aldosterone results in think, uh, retention of sodium and water. So you can imagine if you had a condition with too much aldosterone, you'd end up with hypertension. So those are secondary causes. Um, if you have hypertension in a child, it's much more likely there's a secondary cause because we haven't, haven't had years to develop the primary hypertension. But we're going to talk a little bit about primary hypertension here. So if you think about it, what are the risk factors for primary hypertension? And again, knowing what you know, you know this <laughs> because you have been um, the recipient of public health campaigns, you have been through grade, you know, high school health education, um, you know what the causes are for primary hypertension. So I will list them here. And we can think about them as non-modifiable or the things that we can't control, like we get older, um, we have our family history, is our family history, we can't change those things. Uh, you might have things like chronic kidney disease, which you can manage, but is um, as chronic. Um, I put sex and gender. Um, men tend to have um, more cardiovascular disease um, but than women catch up uh, postmenopausal. Um, I put gender because some gender affirming therapies do have impact on hypertension as well. And then you have the modifiable risk factors, uh, which is often the focus of treatment. Um, such as diet, uh, you know, we've talked about the role of sodium in fluid um, volume. Uh, so people with excess salt intake um, can have hypertension. Alcohol is frequently um, correlated with hypertension. Cigarette smoking as a vasoconstrictor as well as pro-inflammatory uh, can have an impact on hypertension. Uh, changes in your lipids, diabetes, stress, obesity, a sedentary lifestyle, socioeconomic status 
and uh, drugs, both medications and, and uh, non-prescribed drugs can have an impact. So, you know, thinking back to what we talked about is um, the regulation of hypertension, you can see there's many avenues of lifestyle and other risk factors having an impact on your blood pressure. So let's apply this to a case. So Michelle is a 62-year-old woman with an ambulatory, meaning in a clinic, blood pressure of 146 on 92. She feels very well. Uh, she smokes cigarettes and marijuana and drinks wine two to three glasses per night. Her height is five foot four inches and her weight is 172 pounds. She has no family history of heart disease. She walks a few blocks about twice a week. She has a new beautiful granddaughter whom she'd love to watch grow, so is highly motivated to change. So my question is for you to consider is what stage of hypertension is she in? Is she pre-hypertension? Is she normal? Is she stage one or is she stage two? And out of these, what are her modifiable risk factors? You can pause this and write those down uh, so that you can actually think about it. And here they are. Uh, so she is in stage one, because uh, stage one is between 140 and 149, over 90 to 99. Um, and here are her modifiable risk factors being those that she can change. Uh, she also, if she had a family history, that would be non-modifiable. Her age is non-modifiable, uh, for example, but she smokes cigarettes. Um, I put marijuana because there's more studies uh, now that, um, that marijuana is legal on the impact of um, smoking uh, on, your, on your blood pressure and the Ottawa heart Institute states that, um, from what I read, that it is considered a risk. Um, her alcohol intake, uh, her high BMI, and her low exercise or activity are all modifiable risk factors. And so I just want to point out also about the social determinants of health, uh, because we talk a lot about lifestyle, uh, but as, you know, a community nurse at heart, I have to mention that, um, that we have to look upstream as well as to what are the uh, risk factors and what are the other causes of hypertension and this 2019 article was um, was mentioning that the social determinants of health are both an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease and a risk factor, risk factor for hypertension which as we will see is a risk factor for cardiovascular disease. So in terms of clinical manifestations uh, you've probably heard that hypertension is the silent killer um, or the silent disease and uh, that's because it frequently it's asymptomatic until there's some sort of damage to organs. Um, having said that, you can have a symptomatic hypertensive crisis um, and this is a medical emergency and this is when there's a sudden increase um, in blood pressure, particularly that diastolic blood pressure over about 120. Um, so some people can creep up to that slowly and you'll be like, oh man, your blood pressure is high and they're absolutely asymptomatic, no signs of target organ damage like the heart and their kidney function and everything, well maybe their kidney function off, but they're not having any symptoms. Um, alternatively, somebody's blood pressure can rise quickly uh, to those levels and then they can have symptoms such as severe headaches, chest pain, dyspnea, seizures, etc. And this is a medical emergency. So for example, somebody who's taken um, a medication or um, non-prescribed drugs such as cocaine and their blood pressure shoots up or uh, somebody with preeclampsia and their blood pressure suddenly goes up, things like that. So to be aware that you can have symptoms um, in a hypertensive crisis. 
So the main complications um, of hypertension can be are, are on the vasculature. That makes sense because of blood pressure being the force against the vascular walls. Um, and you can think of them in terms of macrovascular complications or the large blood vessels and microvascular complications. So in terms of macrovascular complications or end organ damage, it can damage the heart, uh, it can damage the coronary arteries, and the coronary artery disease as we we're gonna talk about and it can also cause left ventricular hypertrophy and heart failure, which we'll talk more about next week. It can also da uh, damage the vessels in your brain, uh, causing stroke or transient ischemic events, um, as well as a vascular dementia. And it can damage the arteries peripherally, uh, cause causing peripheral vascular disease. Um, you know, when one of those is this intermittent claudication where um, you have, um, with activity, um, if you have vascular disease in, say, your legs, with activity you'll get pain in your calves and when you stop, the pain will go away uh, because of the, um, the demand for oxygen can't be uh, supplied by the vasculature. In terms of microvascular complications, if you think about places in your body that have tiny little capillaries and lots of them and small vasculature and then how the blood pressure, the high blood pressure, the sustained elevated arterial pressure, Will damage those small vessels. Uh, so in your kidneys, as you know, we have lots of capillaries in our kidneys in order to filtrate, um, filter our blood. Uh, so you can have damage to those and get nephrosporosis. Um, and also our eyes have many small blood vessels and so you can get retinal damage and get retinopathy or, or uh, hemorrhages. The diagnostic studies for hypertension, um, and I've, I've I believe I've said it, if I haven't, I will say it now and say it again. Why do we do diagnostic tests is always an excellent question. So in terms of hypertension, we, we test to uh, diagnose, and that is doing blood pressure readings. But we also test to monitor uh, the end organ damage and to find comorbidities or other risk factors that may change what your target blood pressure is, as I talked about earlier. So you're gonna be looking for kidney damage or kidney issues, uh, both as a cause and, and also as an end organ uh, target uh, damage. So such things as urinalysis, creatinine, your blood urea nitrogen. You're gonna be looking for those comorbidities through fasting glucose. You're gonna be looking at risk factors through your cholesterol. Um, you're gonna be looking at the heart through an ECG um, and the urinary albumin excretion uh, also uh, checks your kidney function um, because we shouldn't be excreting albumin um, and all clients treated with hypertension need to be monitored for the appearance of diabetes and vice versa because as I say it changes your uh, target blood pressure. I want to point out ambulatory blood pressure monitoring as one of the diagnostic tests that is very useful um, in primary care um, and this is for when people have an elevated blood pressure and you're just not sure if it's white coat syndrome or just, you know, because you only have your one time reading in clinic. Um, or you have somebody with uh, a diagnosis of hypertension and you, they're being treated with a couple of different medications um, and it doesn't seem to be having an impact and you really want to get a good handle on what their blood pressure is over time. Uh, because, uh, because going back to that, um, diagnosis or the definition of hypertension is the sustained elevated arterial blood pressure. So people get a blood pressure cuff connected to a monitor and they wear it for like 24 or 48 hours and then there's some analysis of, of that reading provided as a report 
And so, for example, I've had clients with, uh, you know, every time they come in, their blood pressure is you know, 150 on 100 or something. You're like, you're on two antihypertensives, what's going on? And then uh, they have their ambulatory blood pressure monitoring and in actuality at home, when they take their average, um, their blood pressure is quite good, maybe 130 on 70 or something, and at night even lower. Um, and so then you have some rationale for not changing their antihypertensives. Um, in terms of care, you have hypertension, you can think of these three things. One is risk stratification, and that's because, as I said, uh, different targets uh, for different comorbidities. Um, I put on your uh, supplemental resources, if you're interested, the Framington, uh, Framingham, I think, um, risk stratification chart that is commonly used. Um, and this looks at things like your lipids, your age, do you smoke, do you have diabetes, so all those comorbidities and risk factors that will increase the trigger to treat. Um, so uh, somebody has a low number of risk factors, you can tolerate uh, different, say, cholesterol levels, which is what this one is around, or blood pressure, compared to people with a lot of comorbidities. So risk stratification is important, which is why we do a lot of those diagnostic tests, lifestyle modification, and drug therapy. So in terms of lifestyle modification, again, you've seen these, been the recipient of public health campaigns. Uh, so you've seen the smoking cessation um, is a lifestyle modification um, intervention, uh, decreasing alcohol intake to the low risk drinking guidelines, um, encouraging weight loss and people's BMIs high, increasing activity levels, etc. You can also, I'm sure, understand that each of these comes with more things we have to think about. So if you're t encouraging smoking cessation, it's like, uh, what is the person's you know, uh, readiness to change? Um, what is their um, access, how accessible is nicotine replacement therapy? And do they have other competing priorities in their life? Um, when I worked in a shelter, for example, um, and I did a little survey of clients, uh, charts and whatnot, uh, and found that the vast majority of clients in that setting uh, smoke cigarettes. And so, you know, you have to think, why? Uh, what is it about uh, their life uh, that increases the rates of smoking? Um, so in terms of medications, as I say, this is not a pharmacology course, but if we go back to the pathophysiology, and for those who have administered medications, and for everybody else who will be administering medications, it's really interesting to understand why we're giving them um, and the, you know, you've seen that there's many uh, routes for regulation of blood pressure, and therefore there's many medications aimed at regulating blood pressure or antihypertensives. So I would encourage you to think about it. Um, you know, when you do a path of course, I mean a pharmacology course, or if you're administering medications, to think what's going on. So if you have a beta blocker, uh, so those things that end in lol, like atenolol, um, those are going to impact your cardiac output by decreasing your heart rate, for example, which is why we always check pulse when we get the beta blocker. Um, and then you have your alpha blockers like prozocin, uh, which are going to, you know, our, uh, our, when our alpha receptors are stimulated, we have peripheral vasoconstriction, so an alpha blocker is going to reverse that. Um, we have our ACE inhibitors, which are going to have an impact in the renin angiotensin aldosterone system. Um, and those are the medications that end in krill, like romamipril or enalapril. And then you have your angiotensin II receptor blockers, which are going to block the basal constriction because of angiotensin II. 
those are the things that end in certain, like candocertain, and your diuretics like Lasix or um, hydrochlorothiazide, which are going to decrease your extracellular fluid volume. So all of these medications um, are, are understandable when, it, when you think about the pathophysiology of the regulation of hypertension, which if you're like me, I find kind of cool. So just quickly going back to our case of Michelle uh, that we talked about before with stage one hypertension, um, I do want to just think about the socioeconomic uh, status issue again because it really does change, I think, uh, care plans um, and it changes people's risks uh, as well. And so as nurses who think um, in a biopsychosocial spiritual dimensions, um, we have to think about this too. So if we think about how Michelle One might earn $200,000 a year and she was motivated to uh, live and be healthy and watch her granddaughter grow, so she quit smoking because she had nicotine replacement therapy covered by her benefits, plus she had some acupuncture, she got some counseling to decrease her alcohol use because she was so stressed out, she joined a gym and got a personal trainer and she arranged a meal plan delivery to improve her, her um, diet. But then Michelle number two earns $20,000 a year. Uh, so my questions to ponder are what are her non-pharmacologic treatment options? Does she have additional risk for hypertension from the get-go? And also, uh, how can we as nurses promote her resiliency then and her strengths? Um, how can we recognize them and promote them so that she too can watch her granddaughter grow? So I don't have answers for those, I just have questions. Um, but it makes me think when we talk about our collaborative care plans, especially if you're in community or primary care, but also if you're discharge planning, for example, um, that you can't just think about the lifestyle changes, but also things like education, employment, access to resources, health education, etc., as per this 2019 article. So that's my plug. Um, so this is the end of the short uh, this lecture on hypertension. I will post um, another one. Um, uh,